Well, about this time, last year, in 2019, a certain commencement address made headlines across the United States. Perhaps you recall it. Uh, the speaker was billionaire Robert F. Smith. The school was Morehouse College in Atlanta. And towards the end of his address, Smith said to the graduates getting ready to cross the stage, On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. This is a challenge to you, alumni. This is my class, 2019, and my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. It was reported later this payoff will end up being around $34 million. Can you imagine the feeling, though? You're graduating, which is kind of euphoric enough, exciting enough, but that specter of student loan debt sort of hangs over your future, perhaps. And then this man comes to speak at your graduation, and he announces your student debt has been wiped away. Afterwards, ABC News interviewed one of the graduates, and he said, This morning, I owed over $100,000 in student loans, and now I'm debt-free. Another person interviewed said, Everyone went into tears, into hugging, into crying together. It was a scene you can look on. You can look it up online. It was a scene of kind of frenzied joy and astonishment. And this is the kind of reaction you would expect to see when a great debt has been canceled, when a great weight is removed. And church, this morning in Luke seven, we see a woman responding to her sin debt being canceled by the King, by Jesus. Her response is what you would expect. Great gratitude, great joy, great love. So again, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And we'll be finishing up this chapter this morning with verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Luke writes, One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, this morning, church family, let's break this passage up into three parts. First, let's see a sinful woman in verses 36 through 40. Then let's see a simple story in verses 41 through 43. And then finally, let's see saving grace in verses 44 through 50. Sinful woman, simple story, saving grace. So first... We see a sinful woman. First verse there, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So thus far in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, have not necessarily been Jesus's best friends. Uh, Instead, they have grumbled at him. They have made no secret in their disappointment with whom he associates. Uh, But here, one of the the Pharisees named Simon, we see his name in verse 40 and following, Simon invites Jesus into his house for a banquet, for a dinner party of sorts. Uh, We can't be sure why Simon the Pharisee does this. Uh, We might want to suspect he's doing it for ulterior motives, but we can't be sure. Uh, What we do know is that he... He seems to want to know more of Jesus. So guests at a banquet in that time would have sort of laid on their on their sides to eat with their feet sort of stretched out behind them. Uh, for a banquet of this sort, people from the outside would have been permitted to come into the house to hear the discussion. And so this is the, the setting for this passage. And then comes a certain visitor. That will make this banquet even more unique. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment. So in comes this woman. Luke calls her a sinner. And from Simon's reproach in verse 39, It seems like her sin is a known one, a public one. So over the years, many have supposed she is a prostitute. And that's a good guess. It's true. It's possible that that's true, though we ultimately don't know. Whatever the case, she's not Simon's first choice for a dinner guest. But here she is. And she hasn't come for Simon, right? She's come for Jesus. Look at verse 38. And standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. So Luke describes this this alabaster flask that she's carrying. Alabaster is a type of stone, and this flask here contains a, a perfumed oil, something we can presume was costly. 
And, and this woman comes to Jesus. He's leaning down by the table to eat with his feet stretched out behind him. And whether or not she, she wanted to get to anoint his head, uh, but she got to his feet first, we're not sure. Uh, she, uh, she ends up doing just that. She anoints his feet and she's, she's weeping. The word there for weeping is a, is a word used to describe rain showers. This is hardcore crying, sobbing. And the tears then provide the water to wet Jesus' feet and wash them. After his feet are wet, the woman then uses her hair that's hanging down to, to wipe his feet clean. She kisses his feet to show reverence for him. And she anoints his feet with precious oil, costly oil. What's striking is this woman doesn't seem overwhelmingly concerned by the onlookers who might be looking at her kind of in shock. She's publicly overcome with emotion in the presence of Jesus. And she's concerned, therefore, more with sincerity than propriety, more with reverence than respectability. And how does Simon the Pharisee respond to this unexpected distraction in the midst of his banquet dinner? Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Pharisees kept their distance from sinners like this woman. We saw that back in chapter 5 when the, the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And again last week we saw Jesus recognize that the Pharisees call him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Simon, seeing Jesus not withdraw from the sinful woman, makes up his mind, Jesus must be no prophet at all. No respectable Jewish prophet would let a woman like this do something like this. Well, friends, as we see throughout the Gospels, it's never safe to think to one's self around Jesus. He understands the thoughts of those around him, even when they're unspoken. And the ironic thing about this is that while Simon presumes Jesus cannot see who this woman really is, the irony is Jesus sees exactly who she is, and that's exactly the reason Jesus is letting her come near. Because he, he sees her heart, a heart full of humility and love. And the irony thickens when we see that Jesus also can see straight into Simon's very heart, a heart of self-justified hypocrisy. Oh, Jesus knows who and what sort of woman this is. He knows who Simon is. And church, by God's grace, we know who Jesus is, don't we? By his grace, he has opened our eyes to see his grace and his glory. We have been shown who and what sort of Messiah he is. One to whom sinners can draw near and find forgiveness and new life. That is who Jesus is. In his new book that just came out, Gentle and Lowly, the author Dane Ortland writes this. He says, you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. 
This high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirtied sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. Christian, your Savior is approachable for sinners who know their need of forgiveness. What do you think about that? Does that comfort and encourage you? It does me. Or does that disgust and revolt you like it does Simon? And I have to confess, sometimes it does that for me as well. I mean, who might this woman be for you? Who would you be offended to seeing Jesus show mercy to? Maybe someone from the LGBT community? Maybe a person from a different class or ethnicity? Well, Simon is about to get an illustration from the master teacher. There in verse 40, Jesus turns to Simon and says, in answer to Simon's inner dialogue, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. And that brings us to our second point this morning. In verses 41 through 43, we see a simple story. So Jesus continues, verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So a denarius uh, was a, a kind of a daily wage for a laborer in that time. And so Jesus is showing sort of two men at two different ends of the spectrum as far as debt. Uh, one owes 500 denarii and the other 50. So one owes well over a year, a year and a half, even more perhaps, uh, 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 worth of income. The other, probably a few months. And in verse 42, for both of them, we see a wonderful surprise. Jesus says, when they could not pay, he, that's the moneylender in this parable, he canceled the debt of both. This goes without saying, but something like, like this would, would not happen. It was a very uncommon occurrence. And so Jesus' story is striking. But it's not just a story that he's trying to get across. He has a question that he's driving at, and that's there at the end of verse 42. When he says, Now which of them, these debtors, will love him, the moneylender, more? His illustration is pretty, pretty easy to kind of, to kind of see the, the similarities and the analogies, right? So the moneylender, God, has two debtors. Uh, the sinful woman, who owes 500 denarii, denarii, and Simon, who owes 50. They are both in debt to him for their sin. So when it's shown then that God desires to cancel that debt and forgive their sin, Jesus asks who then will respond to that cancellation, that mercy, with more gratitude? Will it be the one who owed uh, over a year's wages? The, the sinful woman, or will be the one who had a few months forgiven? Simon the Pharisee. Well, Simon is smart enough to know the answer. There in verse 43, he says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. See, friends, this is the whole reason Jesus had come into the world. The whole reason he had taken on human flesh. He had come to live a sinless life, a life that was sin-debt-free. 
He never disobeyed God. He always honored God. He deserved no condemnation, but only blessing from God. But Jesus came to live that life and then die a death under God's very condemnation. On the cross, Jesus paid the sin debt we owed God. He paid it all, down to the last penny, the last sin. You can imagine the cross as sort of a courtroom, and, and the judge is there, and, and we are there, and, and we have this debt we must pay, but at the cross, the judge justly pours out the penalty for our debt, not on us, but on our substitute, who stands in the dock in our place, on Jesus, on his very beloved Son. So that now, if any, and I mean any, would come to Jesus in faith, like this sinful woman, recognizing their need and his forgiveness, they will be saved. They will have their sin washed away. And friend, that could be you. If you will turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. Your sin debt will be canceled. The guilt of your sin will be washed away. You will be given new life. Won't you do that? As the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel it? Paul says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. One of those beautiful descriptions of the gospel in the New Testament. Friend, if, if you have not trusted in what Jesus did for sinners on his cross, your debt is still on your record. It has not been canceled. It is still very much there. Would you turn to Christ? Would you turn to him so he can wipe out your ledger from any sin debt and fill it with his righteousness? Make you a, a son or daughter of God? Would you turn to Christ? Would you be freed to the new life purchased for you at the cross by the blood of Jesus? If you have any questions about this, uh, even if you're not sure what you even think about this, but you'd like to talk about it with someone, I would love to talk with you about it. Uh, you can email me at the email address at the bottom of your screen, uh, or you can uh, uh, exit out of this, this video when it's over and, and message us on Facebook. We would love to be able to talk with you, even during this, this time of, of social distancing, uh, and talk to you more about Jesus. And Christian, dear Christian, your sin debt is gone. Jesus died and was resurrected for your forgiveness. And so your sin debt is wiped away. Your sin debt will never be resurrected because Jesus was. And he has conquered and paid it all. What amazing mercy that you have received the grace of your king and that he has done that by giving him his very self to you. As the hymn goes, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So perhaps this time of pandemic has brought you greater anxiety over your finances. 
Perhaps during this time of economic instability, you feared whether you can pay your mortgage, your car loan, your student debt payment. Well, Christian, in the midst of those anxieties and uncertainties, which are very real, remember something that's even more real. And that is that your greatest debt has been completely paid forever. There is nothing left that you owe. That is saving grace. And saving grace is our final point this morning in verses 44 through 50. So we saw a sinful woman, a, sh- uh, a simple story, and now saving grace in verses 44 through 50. So with his story told, Jesus makes the application clear. Look at verse 44. Luke writes, Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. He's showing how this woman has responded to him differently than the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, the one who thinks he owes little to God, has hosted Jesus at his home for a nice nice dinner, a nice banquet. But the woman who knows her sin debt is humongous and sees Jesus' forgiveness for even her, she pulls out all the stops to show her love for this Savior. As the scholar James Edwards puts it, she has been Jesus' true host. Right? See, washing feet and kissing the face were not necessarily required at this sort of banquet meal. But even with that being the case, it's still clear Simon really hasn't gone too far out of his way to honor Jesus. But the woman does. And so verses 44 through 46 show this striking contrast between the woman who was forgiven much and the Pharisee who who thinks he needs only a little forgiveness. And that's made clear in Jesus' words in verse 47. Jesus says to Simon, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that this woman's love or her emotion has earned her his forgiveness. Uh, It's not certain if this woman came to the meal having already put her faith in Christ. That's, That's possible, right? She could have heard his teaching beforehand. Or it's also possible that in the process of this meal, she came to grips with the fact that he had forgiven her. But what is clear is that her love shown to Jesus in this text comes from her understanding that Jesus has forgiven her for all her sin. She hasn't earned it. He's freely given it. And she loves him for it. She's pouring out her gratitude to her king for for just the most astonishing thing that he would do for a sinful woman like her. But Simon? Well, Simon's response to Jesus is less heartfelt because he doesn't think he needs a ton of forgiveness, to be honest. He loves little 
because he thinks he needs to be forgiven little. So the sinful woman sings, grace greater than all my sin. Simon sings, grace suitable to my performance. And Jesus says that the only suitable way to respond to the overwhelming mercy of God towards sinners is like the woman, not the Pharisee. Because the woman's response is one of incredible love and gratitude. Now, this doesn't mean the Pharisee literally has less to forgive. I think Jesus actually is using the same technique he used back in chapter 5, where he kind of co-ops the Pharisee's own point of view to make his point. So remember back in chapter 5, Jesus says, I haven't come for those who are well, I've come for the sick. And, and that wasn't to mean the Pharisees are perfectly healthy in their hearts. No, it meant they, they think they're healthy. And Jesus has actually come for those who know they're sick and need a doctor. In the same way, I think here the Pharisees may think they've been they've they've little to be forgiven for. But Jesus has come for those not like that. He has come for those who know that if they're to be forgiven, it will have to be much forgiveness. A lot of it. And in reality, that's true for everyone. Everyone needs a lot of forgiveness. So there in verse 48, Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And in response to that statement, the question arises yet again among those who are present, who is this? Uh, that might be a question of kind of curiosity. It might also be a kind of disdainful way of, of, put, of putting it. Who is this? Jesus' identity has been a theme of chapter 7, has it not? So back in verse 16, the crowd see him raise this young man from the dead and, and they say, he's a prophet. God has visited his people. And then in verse 19 of this chapter, John the Baptist, we saw this last week, sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? So it's sort of this kind of feeling out who Jesus is in chapter 7. And yet again here, Jesus' fellow dinner guests remark, who is this who even forgives sin? Well, we know, don't we? It's Jesus. It's the very Son of God. And he has come to forgive sins by stooping low and taking the filth of his people's iniquity on himself. By coming not just to wash our feet, but to cleanse our very hearts. And to anoint us not just with oil, but with his very Holy Spirit. That's who this is. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. It's the Son of God. And so the account closes with Jesus saying to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, that doesn't mean her faith was a work she used to earn God's favor. No, faith is the tool by which she grabs hold of God's mercy towards her. And it's that mercy that saves her. She has been forgiven. She can go in peace. Dear Christian, and I ask myself the same question. In which of these characters do you see more of yourself? The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once asked, Are you amazed that you're a Christian? If you're not amazed, 
well, I'm afraid you're not a Christian. It's a provocative statement, of course. Of course, our emotions and our amazement at our salvation ebbs and flows. But his point is fair. If you've never been amazed by God's grace towards you as a sinner, if you feel even that he's sort of lucky to get a follower like you, well, then you have not understood the gospel. Christian, are you amazed at the grace that has reached out and plucked you from your road to hell and saved you? Has that grace spurred this deep love and devotion towards Jesus in your heart? If not, I wonder if you understand, first of all, how terrible your sin really is. So this, this Pharisee doesn't consider himself a person who needs a ton of forgiveness. He thinks of himself as a pretty decent person. And maybe you've thought the same. I know I have. I know I can point to plenty of other people who I think are far worse sinners than I am. But Jesus doesn't come for those who have a squeaky clean religious record. He has come for those who know that when all those layers are peeled away and our hearts are revealed, and our hearts are revealed, all of us are rotten to the core in our sin. Christian, for any who would come to Jesus for forgiveness, they must come to be forgiven much. No one is truly forgiven little. So some sins are more destructive than others. Murder is worse than anger though Jesus in Matthew 5 shows that they share the same root. But every sin, murder, anger, a white lie, every sin, big or small, is equally what R.C. Sproul called an act of cosmic treason. Each sin, whether private or public, claims God's throne and seizes his rule. Each sin proclaims that self is more suited to call the shots than God. And so each sin makes us throne snatchers, cosmic traitors to the king. And so each sin deserves cosmic judgment. Each sin warrants death. If you think that's a bit overstated, I wonder if you've ever looked at the cross as, as not just the, the token of your salvation, but a symbol of what was to be your judgment. See, John Stott has, has written, Our sin must be extremely horrible. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately, what sent Christ there was our own greed, envy, cowardice, and other sins. And Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment and so put them away. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There, these noxious weeds shrivel and die. There, they are seen for the tatty, poisonous thing they are. For if there was no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness, except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. Let me read that again. 
For if there was no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness, except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. So Christian, start there. Start there. Do you recognize the nature of your sin, the staggering amount of your sin debt? You know, I think the most godly, joyful, humble people you'll meet during your Christian walk will be those who are more aware of their sin at 70 years old than they were at 30, not those who are less aware of it. I wonder, have you ever wept over your sin? Has your sin ever driven you to tears? Christian, if your love for Jesus is malnourished and small, then your perspective of your sin is most likely malnourished and small as well. But, but as you fully understand the truth about your sin, your love and gratitude and devotion to Jesus and his mercy and love poured out to you, will look more and more like the sinful woman's in Luke 7. As you look at Jesus, you'll find your love no longer tepid or lukewarm or self-justified like Simon's. You'll find your love growing in energy and affection because it's not propelled forward by your performance, but by the mercy of your Lord. So dear brother and sister, do not lose heart. Fly to the cross. Look long and hard at the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus loves to receive broken sinners. Run to him. Let's pray. Lord, I feel really humbled by this text. And so I pray that our hearts would, would just see beyond uh, the way that I presented this, as helpful as I hope that is, and to just see the heart of Jesus for sinners in this text. Lord, thank you. And because of your mercy, our sin debt has been canceled. Our hearts have been made new. We are yours forever. Forgive us for stale love, lukewarm love, unfeeling faith towards you. Help us to see more starkly our sin so we can see more starkly your grace and meditate on that grace day and night so that we might live lives of joy and worship and love, love towards you and love towards those around us. Lord, may your cross make all the difference in Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been great looking into this with you. I do miss preaching and seeing your faces respond to me with either a, a smile like, yeah, I get it, or a, a quizzical look, which means I might want to clarify. Um, so I miss preaching to you, uh, but I'm glad for this technology. Uh, if you have questions or comments about this passage, share them with someone else in the church. Call somebody up, comment on the Facebook video. Um, this is a time of distancing, 
um, but doesn't mean we need to be we need to be uh, really socially distanced, more physically distanced from each other. But speaking of social distance, uh, we have a plan for reopening um, coming out this week. So keep an eye, members, on your emails for that. Um, and then we have our prayer meeting tonight, 7 p.m. on Zoom. I do pray and pray and hope uh, that you guys come out for that so we can pray more for the Lord's work in our church. But you know what's next? As we close, uh, sing along with me as we close with the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.